Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Good morning. I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here at our One Church in Maine locations. You're tuning online. We're so glad you're with us. We hope you'll engage in the chat with Pastor Kurt. Um, and as we go together for these next 30 minutes or so, that I believe God will speak directly to you. Um, I don't know. Bill got so fired up. They, they gave me that music before coming up here. I'm ready to rock and roll. How about you guys? You awake? You awake? Okay. That's the good news. You're awake. The bad news is I have eight points this morning. Yeah, um, it's, there's no football games today. That's a good thing. Uh, but anyhow, no. So if, if Santis was here a few weeks ago, my buddy preached on Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday, and he, he would require us to talk back to him, right? So when I said eight, we have eight points this morning, somebody should say, help him, Lord. <laughs> or maybe say, help us, Lord. Okay, all right, we'll get there. Hey, we're um, in our series map, My Run, and you may have seen this that happened years ago. It was in, in the like, um, motivational speaker circuit. It was a video and a story that was floating around in the 90s. Um, don't know what, I assume it was a true story, uh, but it, whether it was or wasn't, it's a truth story. And when I first saw it, it was a college professor, and he came into his class, and he had this big glass jug, very transparent, clear, at the center of his, uh, the table and he had in like a, a bucket next to it he had some rocks some pretty good sized rocks about the size of baseballs and he just started his class off this way and he he took those rocks and he began to put them in the glass uh, jug maybe you've seen this and he put them in until he couldn't fit anymore and he said to the class he said um is this jug full and they all said yes professor it's full so he reached under a table and he grabbed a little uh, bucket of gravel and he started pour the gravel and the gravel began to make its ways uh, into the rocks and the, and the places between it. And after that, it wouldn't take anymore. He says, is it full? And they said, yeah, yeah, it's full. So he reached down, you know, if some of you have seen this, he took a little bucket of sand and he began to pour the sand into the jug and the sand would filter in between the gravel and the, and the rocks. And now it was up to the top. And he says, is it full now? And now no one would answer. They were too afraid. And he went and he grabbed a pitcher of water. And he poured the water into the jug until it made its way around and got to the very top. And that was completely full. And he said, okay, class, what was the, what's the point of this lesson? And every student to a T said, well, I guess it's that you can always fit more in. And he said, no, that's not the lesson. The lesson is you've got to get your big rocks in first. It's about priorities. If you don't get the big rocks in first, guess what? The world's going to be pouring gravel and sand, your calendar, your family commitments, your career, uh, your iPhone, uh, your calendar. And so if we don't get the big rocks in first, 
Um, we, we may not build the foundation we need to build for our spiritual growth. That's what we talked about as a, as a vision team back in 2020. What are kind of the, the legs of the store, the table, if you will, that we can grow in our faith, that we can continue to grow in our faith, that we can explore, you know, grow in our faith for the first time, or maybe reignite our faith, or maybe go to a next level in our faith. And we came up with those four steps. Two weeks ago, we, I talked about the first one, explore. We need to explore. We need to continue to be exploring. Widening the circle, not just as that's our mission statement of people and, and impact, but widening the circle in our own minds for, for growing through worship, through prayer, through uh, study of God's word, through small groups, through conversations. We're exploring. Simon Sinek is a motivational speaker and, and coach that really has influenced me. I read his book uh, back, I think, in 2012 called Start With Why. It's must-reading to me for leadership. And it really gave me a perspective that I've used in my teaching and coaching with other pastors and churches. But more recently, he wrote a book. It's not right now, but I just finished it up. And it's entitled Leaders Eat Last. I think Jesus said something like that in Luke 14, right? And in a book, he said, the only leaders that are worth following are those who know that they're continually a student. And that's who we are. We're exploring. We're growing in our faith all the time. The word disciple literally meant student or apprentice. There's only one master rabbi, and it's not us. And Christians and people of faith get very dangerous when they think they've arrived. The other big rock that we put in there after we put that rock of exploring as we're jumping from rock to rock, I guess, to get across the river is what Pastor Scott and Pastor Steve talked about last week. Connect. We don't explore on a deserted remote island, right? We explore in community. We explore in the world. We explore with each other. We come into a church and small groups and fellowship where we can ask tough questions, where we can encourage one another, exhort one another, confess our sins to one another, uh, weep with one another, laugh with one another. That's, that's the journey to be in that kind of committed community. And today and next week, we're going to talk about transform that our goal is to be transformed, right? Grow more and more into the likeness of Christ. And in the story that we had read for us today, I think it's incredible. It's two stories, one sandwiched in between. The story of Jairus, the, the religious leader, the leader of the synagogue, and his little daughter. And the story of this woman who had an issue of, of blood, of hemorrhage, and had been sick 12 years, and had exhausted all of her resources going to all the worldly experts, but now comes to Jesus. Now it's very interesting, if you look at these stories, there's almost two different audiences. When the woman comes and touches Jesus, he stops the presses, and he, he calls her out in front of everybody. He wants everybody to hear what he's going to say. He, he wants the crowds to hear it. He wants his disciples to hear it. It's a very public healing. But with Jairus, when he goes, he doesn't even take all his disciples. He only takes Peter, James, and John. He dismisses the crowd. He takes the parents in with the little girl. And he says, don't tell anybody about this. This is just for you. And I think what we have here is some basic teaching, basic training on the faith we're going to need to become transformed. That's in the story of the woman, the public discourse. And then Angerius, if I have time, I'll try to get to it. Some advanced learning. First, what do we learn? The first step we learn is that transformation requires faith. Martin Luther used to say, sola fide. We are justified, we are saved by faith alone. 
right? Not by our works, not by our achievement. Now, faith is different than belief. Some people say faith and belief. No, they're not. Jesus said you can do all, anyone can do anything's possible for those who believe. But we believe at different levels sometimes, right? We're shaken up. Uh, We may only have a little bit of belief. We're not sure. We got doubts. We got fears. Faith is, my grandma used to say, putting legs up under what you believe. Faith is an action. And Jesus says to this woman who was healed, you remember in this, if you heard what Bill read, it said, your faith has healed you. You've been healed because you took an action. We're going to talk about what that action is. You took an action toward me. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm talking really fast, aren't I? Eight points. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, those who hear these words of mine, now this is his best body of teaching, most comprehensive. And he said, those who hear these words of mine, watch this, and put them into action will be saved. So it takes faith. And there's, there's, in this basic teaching, quick, the first four points I see are this woman has, is taking this action and transformation occurs in these four words. Okay, I'm going to give you four words. Here's the first one. It happens, I'm going to probably spend the most time on this one, in desperation. Desperation is the trigger for faith. If you've tuned in today, somebody invited you, and you're kind of curious, and you're kind of spiritually seeking, or uh, maybe somebody invited you to come with them, and you did, or maybe you remember coming here yourself, um, or, or somewhere where, where you really got on the road to faith or back to faith, it's usually because there's some trouble in your life. Now, that trouble can be monumental, It could be losing a job, divorce, uh, cancer, loss of a loved one. Those are dramatic, but it doesn't have to be. It can be also subtle. This, uh, I read uh, recently in a... a, newsletter I get from one of the seminaries at at Duke University. They had a laundry list of young people who are out there, like in their first three years of ministry. Can you imagine just starting ministry and starting in the last two years? And they have a faith, and they're working at, and they're trying to figure stuff out. And I read the story of one young man. It really caught my attention. Um, He went, his goal in life, he was a really good quarterback, uh, all state in high school, and he wanted to play in the NFL. He ended up playing and starting, having a great career at a Division III uh, college, but he knew he wasn't going to make it to the NFL. So he, he adjusted his goals a little bit, and he decided to go into sports marketing, that he could work in the NFL and follow his passion, his dreams, uh, even if he couldn't play in the NFL. He uh, you know, graduated great school, and he was hired very early on, right out of college, by the team that was just before the Washington football team, now the Commanders. Are you keeping up? Okay, he was with the Washington team, football team, and um, he began to rise up the ranks, man. He was working under a GM. He was really just like right in his sweet spot. I I saw the picture. Actually, I reached out to him last week because I feel we share a little kindred stories. And he's a young guy and beautiful young wife, three beautiful young kids. Like he said, I had it all. I was right there, man. I was right at my dream. He said, but one day I said, why do I feel so empty? Why do I feel so empty? And he began to search and seek and he and his wife were attending a church together, and he decided to go back home to North Carolina to enroll at Duke Divinity School. He graduated from there a few years ago. He's now serving pretty much kind of a rural church out in, uh, outside of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he said, I've never felt so fulfilled. 
See, there's a yearning. Here's what Mark is telling us in the story of this woman. He's telling us that all of us, all of us, have a bleeding emptiness in the center of our lives. And we need, we need to fill it with something more than this world. See, part of this woman's problem, it wasn't just that, that she was sick. It's that she had tried everything. Everything the world had to give. All the best doctors, all the best programs, all the best weight loss clinics, all the best relationship ads, you know, Tinder and, and Match.com, everything. She tried everything to get better. And she wasn't coming to Jesus. It's a big difference. She wasn't coming now to say, Jesus, I want you to help me with these other things. She was going to him as an alternative to these other things. And she was communicating through her actions that she was so desperate knowing that there's something out there that nothing in this world can finally fill. And if you've had that achiness in your life and you haven't filled it with, what, you know, with God, it's going to come back. And, and her faith was out of desperation. Now, here's why I say I'll take a little longer with this. Um, what keeps us from uh, this place of desperation? Maybe some of you haven't got there because we just haven't been desperate enough. It's pride, right? We talk about pride going before the fall. I had the, uh, the privilege to do my master's work at seminary at Princeton University. Very historic seminary, in fact. And I'm a history nerd. Like, the first president of Princeton Seminary is one of the signers of the Declaration of, in- of Independence. So I go down in the archives, way down in the Bible, just read this history stuff. And I found out there was a letter-writing thing that was going on between the, the, the president of Princeton University and his wife and the president of Harvard and his wife were good friends. They're good couple friends. And they had made acquaintances, obviously, through presidents in the Ivy League, whatever. The, the husband and wife at Princeton, the president and his wife, were Christians. The president and wife at Harvard were atheist agnostic. So because they were good friends, the, the wife of the, the first lady of Princeton was writing her friend at Harvard, and she was sharing her faith. She wasn't doing it in a condescending way. She was just sharing how God had been important in their lives, how it's helped their marriage, how it's helped her be a better mom. It was really beautiful stuff. And I was reading it with great interest. And then I read the letter, all this preserved, that the, the wife of the president of Harvard wrote back to her. And she said, look, you're, you're really piquing my interest. But there's one thing I can't get over. She said, you mean to say that you let your children go to church every Sunday, bow their knees to an altar and confess that they're sinners? She said, I could never let my kids do that. And there it is, right? See, we, it's not that we don't get transformed because we have too little faith. We don't get transformed because we have too much pride. So we need desperation. The second thing we need is information. Right? Information. I won't take too much time here. Some people think like information or learning, that's the antithesis of faith. That's ridiculous. Faith doesn't replace your thinking. Faith replaces your fears. And faith helps us to think and go beyond our thinking, right? It, in the story, what did it say? Why did she go to Jesus? She heard about him. She had heard about him. She was studying up. She was listening to this one that might have something that the world uh, couldn't offer her. If we're going to seek transformation through Jesus Christ, we have to learn about him and, and seek to expand our minds. Be transformed. What did the Bible say? If you read Romans 12 too, be transformed through the renewing of your minds. 
So search the scriptures and listen to the words preached and read and, 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 and go deeper in your thinking in small groups and conversations. We need information. The more information we get, the more God can use that to bring about transformation. Let me hurry to number three. Desperation, information, and I love this one, direction. Somebody taught me a long time ago that what Jesus is saying, that it's, it's, not, the, it's not the depth of your faith that brings you into a relationship with Christ. It's the object of your faith. That we're making our way to Jesus. She went to Jesus, so I say, you can go with kind of some shaky belief. In some ways, she was kind of superstitious. She thought this was going to be like magic. Right? If I just touch his hem. She doesn't have it all together. She's, she's seeking. She's exploring. She's trying to make a connection. She, you know, is going with the faith she has. But the key is, she's moving in that direction. She's moving toward Christ. And if you can just do that in your search... If you can just be heading in his direction and say, I don't know if I believe what this guy's preaching or I don't know that I have it all figured out, but I'm going to, but I'm going to move toward him, right? I'm going to trust that, that there's something there that, that I can learn from. And see, when Luther says we are saved by faith alone, he didn't say you're saved because of your faith. You're saved by your faith. You're saved by putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward. I read a ridiculous story. It was about three guys, a fictional story. And they were getting chased by a bear in a snowy forest, right? And they were running away from this bear, and they got to the edge of a cliff. And below them was a frozen lake, and it had snow on the cover. And uh, they didn't know. The first guy says, he, he has to jump. The bear's there. He says, he, he jumps. And on the way down, he says, I'm sure I'm going to die. I'm sure I'm going to die. I'm probably going to go through the ice and, you know, die. And he lands, and there's six inches of ice and nice powdery snow, and he's safe. The second guy jumps and says, ah, it's a 50-50 chance. You know, I might go through the ice. I might not. There may be enough snow. And he lands and he's safe. The third guy jumps and he goes, you know, it's been cold for a while. I think there's plenty of ice there. I think there'll be a nice powdery snow. He lands and he's safe. Which one was more saved? Right? The one who has the most faith? <laughs> no. They were all saved because they were all heading in the right direction. And even the guy said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He's saved. Why? He jumped. And this woman jumped. She made a move in God's direction. And that's really all it takes. I've been very, very moved by the testimony of a Vietnamese woman named Phi T. Kim Phuc. Now, if you've studied history at all, the Vietnam War, um, Nick Utt won a Pulitzer Prize for the picture from the Vietnam War. If you remember, it's like a, a young adolescent girl after her in Vietnamese, the, the town, her village had been napalm, and she's running like this. You've seen the picture. I was going to put up there, but it, it's 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 tough to look at, scarred and hurt. And and she was she was in June eighth, seventeen ninety two, when napalm was dropped on her village. Uh, Kim was just nine years old, and she ran from her hiding place in the village. And she's running with her arms out, screaming, "Non qua, non qua, too hot, too hot." Doctors said Kim would not survive. But after 14 months in the hospital and 17 surgeries, she returned to her family. Despite the miraculous recovery, however, Kim was seldom free from pain or nightmares or anger. And this was her testimony. I read this. She said, the anger inside me was like a hatred high as a mountain. 
and my bitterness was black as old coffee. I hated my life. I hated the people that did this to me. I hated everyone who was normal because I was not normal. I wanted to die many times. Watch this. Doctors helped heal my wounds, but they couldn't heal my heart. Remember in the story, the woman for 12 years had gone everywhere, had spent all she had, gone to all the right doctors, and wasn't healed. These doctors helped heal my wounds, but they couldn't heal my heart. While spending time in a library, Kim found a Bible, and she decided to start reading the New Testament. And she wrote, the more I read, the more I felt confused. I wondered which was true, my religion or the Bible. She said her brother-in-law had a friend who was Christian, so she arranged to see him with her list of questions. After they talked, the friend invited Kim to visit his church for a Christmas service. The end of the service was a turning point, she said, in my life. I could not wait to trust the Lord. Jesus helped me learn to forgive my enemies, and I finally had some peace in my heart. Now when I look at my scars or I suffer pain, I'm thankful the Lord put his mark on my body. To remind that he is with me all the time. And if you read about 15 years ago, Kim was able to meet the pilot who dropped the napalm bomb on her village, and she forgave him. Now, you hear that story? Exploring, <laughs> picking up a Bible, connecting with another Christian, a community. And what was she doing? With, with no knowledge, with no awareness, she was just heading in that direction. And that's, that's how we get transformed. Uh, John Ortberg once said, in our spiritual searching, some of us are uh, strivers, some of us are drifters, and some of us are sailors. He, he said, we're trying to cross the ocean, right? Like an ocean of understanding between the natural and the supernatural and the, the physical and the spiritual. And he said, some of us strive. We think if we just if we get a rowboat, if we just row hard enough, row hard enough, we'll finally get there. And he said, that's not very successful in crossing the ocean. He said, others are drifters. What they do is they just jump on a raft, let the wind take them wherever. But he said, some are sailors. Like we're dependent on the wind. And Jesus used the wind as an image for the Holy Spirit. And the wind is what powers our motion and our going forward. But as sailors, we tack the wind. We make sure we're going with the direction of where God seeks for us to go. So transformation happens and desperation doesn't happen without it. It happens with information in the right direction. The last one is, it happens in substitution. You know, I've talked so often that the, the, the bottom line of the gospel is substitutionary sacrifice. It's the greatest love that's ever given. It's that, you know, Jesus came and died the death that we deserve, lived the life that we were supposed to live, and did it willingly. He substituted himself. See, we miss this, but in the story, when the woman touches Jesus, something surprises him. Something happens to him that has never happened before. He senses power go out of him. And see, this is the ER. Like, Jesus didn't heal her because her illness suddenly, you know, her weakness evaporated in the air. No, he became weaker so she could become stronger. His power went out of him. And it was a foretaste of what was going to happen on the cross. In fact, friends, he's showing us that this is the way it is in the world, that Jesus Christ was willing to give up his power, position, and privilege so he could come down, not to talk down to the world, but to lift the world up, to not be king of the mountain, but to be king of the world. And, and, and this is a model for our world, that those who are weak in the world will never get strong unless those who are strong are willing to get weak. This is a principle. 
And Jesus said, I want you to see me doing this for you. In fact, how did this woman touch him and not die? All of the Old Testament teaching said, if you touch God, if you see God's face, you would die. In fact, when God came down on Mount Sinai and the mountain shook, God said, tell the people don't touch the mountain, they'll die. And he just had his feet on the mountain. This is Jesus. This is the one that says a whole, all of God was pleased in him to dwell. And she didn't, and when she touched him, he didn't die. Why? Because he was going to die in her place. And she could only get strong if he was willing to get weak. So friends, those are the basics. A sense of desperation. Maybe you haven't experienced Jesus this way. You know what's scary? Is you had all this crowd around Jesus. All the throngs. Everybody pressing in on him. And the disciples were like the secret service, right? And they're trying to keep the people away. And then Jesus said, somebody touched me. <laughs> and Naeem did such a good job with this back in the fall. But I think Mark really sanitizes what the disciples probably said. Because he said they went, um, sir, everyone's touching you. Like everybody. But why is it all those people were thronging around Jesus, all those people were touching him, all of them were looking for a miracle, but only this woman connected with him. You know the scary thing that says to me, it says, Chip, you can be in church all your life, you can be going to Bible studies, you can be in doing all these things, but you know about Jesus, but you don't, haven't made this connection with Jesus that will change your life. Maybe because what? I'm just not desperate enough. And when you say, gosh, you know, I, I need to know God this way, that's the first step, def- desperation. Filling our minds and our hearts with information. Heading continually in his direction. And understanding, don't just look at Jesus as an example in general, but look at what he did on the cross in particular. All right, you ready for advanced lessons? You hanging in there? All right, five minutes I got. I might take six, but I'm not going to take eight. Um, To give you three, here are advanced lessons. The first four are what you need to get into a basic position for transformation. These are three that once you're into that journey can begin to transform you into the likeness of Christ. The first one is this. It's about Jesus taking his time. Do you notice how Jesus takes his time in this story? You know, when Jairus comes, or Jairus comes and says, hey, my daughter's dying. He jumps in the EMS truck, right? They're on the way. Sirens are going. Everybody's excited. And then Jesus goes, stop the truck. I need to go talk to this woman over here. Do you know how radical that is? This woman was ceremoniously unclean. She would not have been permitted into worship for 12 years. And Jesus says, she needs me. I need to go to her. In other words, he takes the unclean outcast woman ahead of the religious male leader. Do you know what Jairus must have been thinking at that moment? But do you notice if you read scripture, every time there's someone who's marginalized, someone who is oppressed, someone who is cut off, someone who is beat down, Jesus always stops for them first. Whether it was Zacchaeus or the religious crowd, whether it's a man with a withered hand and the Pharisees, whether it's a woman at the well and confused disciples. And why is that? Because he is taking his time to show us his priorities and his great love and grace. He is a God of grace that we can't earn. He says, I have a gift for you you'll never earn. You just simply need to receive. You need to know I love you unconditionally. And guess what? People who are broken and marginalized, they always get it first. And Jesus always starts there. And he shows us our, his priorities. His priorities is to come and lift up the lowly. That's what Mary sang about. 
and bring the pride down a few meters, right? And, and by him taking his time in this particular way, he's showing that. And it's teaching. Somebody taught me this before. If you really want to get to Jesus, all you need is a need. All you need is nothing. But you know what the problem is? When I say to you, all, all we need is nothing, so few people have that. So few people have that. But he is a God of great love. The second thing, Vance teaching, he takes us time to show us that he is Alpha and Omega. You know, you heard when the whole ordeal in Afghanistan for years and years of fighting, not just with us, but previous to us, the Soviet Union at the peak of their world power. And it was something the, the Taliban would say to whoever conquering armies are coming in. They would say, you have the watches, but we have the time. Let me tell you something. That's a lie. Everyone in the world has the watches. Every great government, every great empire, every malicious leader, every group, they have the watches, but Jesus Christ is the time. He's Alpha and Omega. He is what we need in all times. And that's why he says, I will be with you to the end of the earth. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is right what we need when we need it. But he takes his time. The problem is sometimes we don't really want Jesus. We want Jesus for our agenda. We're trying to hurry him. You cannot hurry Jesus. How many of you ever just like, Lord, like, give me patience, but hurry up about it, right? You know, like, I need this now, I need this now, I need this now. You are not going to hurry Jesus. When uh, the woman comes to him, she's transformed immediately. When Jairus comes to him, his daughter dies. So which is he? Is he Lord of all time? Is he Lord of all heaven and earth just when the miraculous happens or even when the pain and the hurt happens? And the answer is yes. Because he's the creator of all things. He's the creator of, of life, the author of life. And he said, look, I've taken care of the only storm that can sink you. I've taken care of the only death that can really destroy you. So I can, I, can, I can be with you. In this world, you will have trials and tribulations, but don't be afraid. Guys, I've overcome. I am Alpha and Omega. He shows us his great love. He shows us his priorities. And finally, I'm going to end with this. Man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not out of time yet. He takes, who laughed? I heard you. <laughs> You're still praying, Lord, help us. Um, Jesus takes his time. I want, I want you to really grab on this one. Jesus takes his time to show us he desires intimacy and touch. Intimacy and touch. Do you know of the five senses? I could make the case that touch is the most important. And sometimes it's the least talked about. We talked about hearing and seeing and, you know, like they're the alpha senses. And, but touch is such a powerful remedy. You know, just a, a hug, a pat on the back, uh, uh, holding of your arm. There's times, you know, like with friends, with spouses, there's times when I'm just so beat up and broken that Terry knows there's nothing she's going to say to me that's going to make me feel better, but she might just grab my arm or stroke my hair. Touch, touch is so powerful. Do you know that? And Jesus wants touch. He wants intimacy. He slows down for this. You know, and that's, that's one of the things COVID robbed us of a couple years. Everybody says that COVID takes away what? Uh, sense of taste and smell. That's not true. It took away taste of sense and smell and touch. You know, my dad died of COVID and the best I could do was FaceTime. No hold of hand, no touch, no hug. We run around here. We have still most of our folk are, are disconnected. We're not all together in the same room. We miss coming up to the communion rail. We miss hugging. We miss Touch is important. You know, I, I read a psychoanalyst that did a, did a study about touch 
and how, how it's so important and it motivates us and it, it encourages us. And you know what he studied? He studied the NBA. And he looked in the NBA how much these guys touch each other, right, on the team. You know, high fives, fist bumps, chest bumps, half hugs, full hugs, all this. And he went so far, this is a guy, he wasn't even a sports fan. And he researched, he took tape of all the teams, and he found out that the teams that touched the most were all the most winning teams. Now, I don't know, but it, but it, it was, it was his case, and he was making the case that when you're in that kind of, that kind of continual encouragement and touch and, and brotherhood and sisterhood, it does something for your soul. And Jesus Christ says, I want to touch you. And I want you to do like this woman didn't touch me. Look at him in this room with this little girl. And he says in Aramaic, which, which means it had to have happened. Because why would Mark, who's writing in Greek and speaks Greek, say Aramaic and then have to tell us what it means? Because it must have happened. And Jesus said, Talitha kyum. Now, now look, little girl, get up. Now, there's a way to say little girl and it's condescending. Not here. I studied Aramaic scholars and said, this is what a mother would say when gently waking her child. And look at this, at this moment of utter need, of death of a child, in this moment, at this tragedy, Jesus sits where a mother would sit. He says tenderly what a mother would say, honey, it's time to get up. And he reaches out his hand for the touch that only a mother would give. That's what he wants for me and you. That's what will transform us. And when you realize what he did and why he didn't hurry, you might stop hurrying yourself. And you might, that empty place in your center might start to fill up. And you might develop the priorities he has, all because he was willing to touch. Well, let me say this. Before I got up here today, my friend, our wonderful leader, Bill Lacey, led us in that offering. You saw it online or here. And I love when he said, let's pray. And you may not have caught yourself, Bill. But he was praying. You hear what he said? He said, God, thank you for waking us up that we might know your presence and love. I want you to hear Jesus Christ saying to you, friends, right now, hey, little girl, little boy, child of mine, wake up and experience my touch and see if it won't transform your life. So Terry's going to lead us to the table where we can enter into that moment of intimacy with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.